Next Chapter Podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Before we get started, some exciting news from Radiotopia. From the makers of Passenger List, we have a new fiction podcast, and it's probably unlike any fiction podcast you have ever heard. Mumbai Crime is a series of thrillers and mysteries recorded entirely on the streets of Mumbai, India. It's presented by creators Aisha Menon and Nadir Khan, and each season is a complete story. Season one is a thriller called Q&A. It's about an Indian street kid called Thomas, who gets onto a TV quiz show and scoops the billion rupee prize on live TV. But Thomas hasn't gone on the show for the big prize. He's there for something else. It's based on the same novel that inspired the Oscar-winning movie Slumdog Millionaire. It's immersive, fast-paced, a gripping story of people, power, corruption, and truth. And I think you're going to love it. Radiotopia's Mumbai Crime Season 1 is out now. Check it out at radiotopia.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Goodfriend, executive producer of the Play on Podcast series at Next Chapter Podcasts. The Play on Podcast series 12th Night was a very special production for a lot of reasons. We recorded it right around the time that a lot of theater artists were finally getting back to work after a more than two-year hiatus from being on stage due to COVID and pandemic restrictions. The story has so much to say about love, loss, reunion, and forgiveness. And all of those themes seem to resonate with this sense of coming out of hibernation and the longing that so many theater artists had to be together again after such a long time away. It also coincided with news that the Supreme Court seemed likely to overturn Roe versus Wade. And the history of Twelfth Night and how it seems to parody the restrictive religious elements in Shakespeare's time, that all seemed newly relevant as work got underway in this series. As listeners, you might also sense in this production a feeling of camaraderie and, and familiarity between the actors that we cast. Well, that's because a lot of them, most of them, in fact, knew each other very well from work that they'd done together on stage at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, including in a production of Twelfth Night, directed by Christopher Liam Moore. Christopher Liam Moore is with us now. 
for the Play On Podcast 12th Night series bonus episode that you're about to listen to. But he's here with one of our leading actors, Amy Brenneman, who plays Olivia. And these two people actually know each other probably better than anybody else in the entire cast. And we're going to listen to their story and how they got to know each other. Amy, Chris, welcome to the Play On Podcast bonus content series for Twelfth Night. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Well done. That was very well done. <laughs> all all in one take. <laughs> I didn't even... I didn't even get into your bios. Now I'm, I'm going to do that because I have to, because Amy, Amy, you have worked with Chris a lot in the past. You know, Alison Carey, who did the translation, uh, but you have not only done theater. I think everybody who watches any television knows that you are the creator, the executive producer, and the star of a series called Judging Amy. Uh, which got two TV Guide Awards, three Golden Globe nominations, Producers Guild nomination, three Emmy Award nominations, People's Choice Awards, SAG nomination. Anyway, you thought you've done a ton of TV. Uh, and a lot got- of outfits back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Chris, you're not just a director. You're also an actor. And you've worked at Artists Rep, Utah Shakespeare Festival, California Shakespeare Theater, American Rep, Berkeley Rep, Yale Rep, Guthrie, lots of reps and lots of famous theaters. I want to know from you both, and I'll start with you, Chris, what is the story of how you and Amy got to know each other? Um, Amy and I have known each other, have been friends. I mean, it's it's 40 years almost, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, 40 years. Uh, We went to college together, and and Amy and I are the same class. And we, I think the f- first, we, we were friends before the Cronauer group, but that was really the kind of it. So our, my husband and um, our Amy's, one of Amy's besties, I think, Bill Rausch is a, a, a theater director. He put us both in this theater group called the Cronauer group, which was in um, Amy, my sophomore year. And we mostly spent time working on this production of Bill's called Medea Macbeth Cinderella, which is all three of those plays performed at the same time on the same stage. And Amy and I, I, Amy was Cinderella and I was Lady Macbeth. And we spent most of our time uh, giggling in the corner and not really listening to Bill Rausch try to direct us to just get very frustrated with us. And we kind of, I think it was that experience where we just kind of knew we were going to be in each other's lives for the rest of time. Um, Amy, did you feel that way too? Did you have that instant sense of, of- yeah, I mean, I, so Bill, Billy was um, one of two, Uh, So he's two years older than me and Chris. And so when, you know, all of us theater geeks were like, oh, we want to be in play. And there's a lot of, I mean, Harvard at that time was, uh, there was no department. And um, now there is. So I, so I, I always have said like, it's the greatest thing that we weren't trained. And now Harvard does have a department. So I have to change that a little bit. But there was a ton of unsupervised theater making it's literally like there are no adults 
And so we were always very entrepreneurial and sort of egoy because nobody was saying you don't know how to do Brecht, so stop it. We would just sort of do it. So Bill was one of two. This other guy named Paul, like they were the they were the shit. And um, well, to back what, what, it up, what was Paul's last name? Do you remember? Is Warner, he is, Warner? He is he, and he's still uh, directing, right? Or yeah, he's still directing. Yeah, yeah, he directs, and he's also a filmmaker and yeah, a, a professor. Yeah, very different styles, super different styles, but both very confident, very into taking classics and spinning it on his head. Not not a lot of new plays, probably because they didn't have a playwriting program. Um, so the first production on the main stage at the Globe. Uh, when when Chris and I got to college was this production for Romeo and Juliet, which I did not get cast in, <laughs> and oh. Chris did. Wait. So whatever. Who directed it? They will never, never work again. <laughs> Although I I I always say this this story about Bill, which is absolutely one hundred percent true, which is. You know, and I'm sure, Chris, you felt the same way. Like, we're bringing what we did in high school, right? And wow. so I was just, like, you know, adorable and funny and flirty and had all this stuff. And I always say to Billy, it's as if he he didn't ever shut me down, but he's like, okay, cool. Um, what else do you have? Because <laughs> the first time he cast me, it was as a middle-aged man, in this Brecht production of the visions of Simone Marchard, it was a bureaucrat, was not even a flamboyant, fabulous man. And it's literally like somebody took all of my colors in my paint box and I never felt shamed by him. It wasn't like, you're not adorable and great, but it's like, yeah, let, can you do that? And I was like, no. <laughs> and that was and, the beginning. <laughs> Amy, this is coming from where? Where did, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in uh, central Connecticut and I went to a big public high school. Uh, I come from lawyers, I but I was a theater kid. I mean, we had a wonderful gal who's still my friend in my town and did theater all the time, loved it. So I got to college and knew right where I wanted to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, and he, he was really into and it still is, but very, those were the early days of cross-gender casting. You never knew. I mean, half the time I wasn't even a human being. I, one of my triumphs was as a gas pump, actually. It's a very <laughs> memorable production. Very true. In what? Um, Winter's Tale, of course. <laughs> oh, uh, sure, because there are gas pumps in Winter's Tale. Directed by Bill Rausch? Yes. <laughs> I was a hip-hop dancing Gas pump. No and it kidding. was this, it was this terrible, it was brilliant. It was our, our designer, Lynn, who's brilliant, but like, you know, I was literally doing hip hop on uneven ground outside. It was this touring unwieldy production. It was all sorts of wrong <laughs> logistically, but I kept saying to Lynn, like, I really need this costume because I need to be able to see my feet and it's at night. And, and, you know, she had a million things going on, but I finally get this costume and it is, <laughs> and it's a gas pump. Yeah, it's foam, sort of like Gumby, right? It's foam <laughs> with these slits, with the gas, the hose, like like this thing. And I was like, like I mean, it really was one of the few. I remember I probably sobbed to you, Chris. I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. Like I can't. I'm gonna break my neck. Da-da. And I said to to Lynn, like, I will. I'm. I will wear this tonight. But this is not going to work. 
I go out, the audience is like, ah! <laughs> Damn it. I wore that. What all. was this? Was this a named character from Twelve from uh, 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 Winter's Tale? Oh. No, it was just a, a character that kind of got thrown in. You know, circling back, I feel like what I had gone to him when I was eighteen. I was like, I can do this. He was like, No, no, no. But you know what? He needed that girl. <laughs> when he <laughs> said, What else tra- you got? Teen transition, right? <laughs> Well, that was part of a whole, that was a big tour we did in Cornerstone of the Winter's Tale. And it was insane. It was completely, it remains the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Okay, so Chris, you you just took a a light year leap ahead in in the chronology. (laughs) Oh no, don't apologize. Now you have to fill in all that backstory. Cornerstone. I, uh, yes, uh, but the thing I wanted to say about the gas pumps was, you know, the Winter's Tale, it was this outdoor touring production and we performed all over the country. And we, so of course there was no like act curtain, there was no wings, there was no proscenium. And Bill was just like using the things that were at our disposal. So the bus that we were all touring on became the act curtain, like sort of crossed the stage and parked on the stage so we could change scenery. And that's why Amy was a a dancing gas pump. Um, And there were cars, it was just a crazy thing. So Chris, you met freshman year, were you both freshmen at Harvard at the uh, uh, same year? Yes, yep. Okay, so none of you knew each other. You didn't know Bill Rausch, who who has gone on to become a very famous director. Uh, and the the three of you just started kind of collaborating on new new things together. You did you just continue in in a in a sort of a tight knit group all the way through college? Where did Cornerstone come from? How did we get to Cornerstone and eventually to Oregon Shakespeare Festival? Well, it was a lot of us that had worked start that worked with Bill and worked in that group, the Cronauer group. And the cool thing about that was Bill did a production of Yerma that fall. What is is that a, a who wrote that play? A Lorca. It's Lorca. Oh, it's okay, the lady you. who can't have a baby. And that and that and that time, uh, he did not cast me. And he the, cast me as in a cast, shitty part. Yeah. <laughs> I was furious. And it, you know really, what? It he wanted you to compete with each other. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened was um, it was a rare miss. It didn't quite work. Bill had some ideas that didn't quite work. And what he realized was, we all kind of realized was, and I still, I think we all still feel this way as professionals, the model of doing a play and then bye, see you in five years, if ever. He's like, we got to we let's hang together you know so it was sort of and we loved the Worcester group we loved ensembles we still love ensembles yeah so he said rather than casting a play and doing a play let's commit to a semester and and we did a lot of different things I mean MMC was was sort of throughout but we did go back and and did Lorca did the Yuma with me in the lead and that's right but I think that what came out of that was rather than see our work as discrete plays, we committed to to one another. You did this early on in college. I mean, this is very like this. This is a sort of a thing that a lot of people don't really get to early on, right? The realization that oh, let's just stick together and do yeah. work together. 
Yeah. Well, and it's funny too, because that may have had something to do quite honestly with there not being a department. So there wasn't a structure to major in theater. Um, you know, like if there had been a teacher or somebody who had been our lightning rod, you know, maybe we would have structured around that teacher or that major, but we really, it was completely organic. Um, and we, we centered around Bill. I mean, he's quite a leader and always was. And, and I think too, like, cause Aim and I, you know, Bill graduated and Amy and I still had two years oh, to go. Bill, Bill was older than you. Yeah, he two was years older. And, and he went, you know, we, Amy and I both did shows at the ART when we were undergrads. And it was interesting because, you know, we had... Sorry, I mean, just interjecting here. ART for American Repertory Theater, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And it was before the the ART had a grad program, so they would occasionally cast undergrads in their shows. And, you know, we like we worked with great, amazing directors and people there. But it was interesting. Bill had gone off and was working in D.C. with P Peter Sellers, the director. But the 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 genesis of Cornerstone sort of came with Bill and Allison Carey, who was a little bit older than both of us, but we knew her, right? Because she was always hanging around the the, the Cornerstone. I didn't Bill. really know her. I mean, I knew, I knew of her a little bit. I she, think. she was more the RJ. She was yeah. three or four. I Slightly think older than us. Four. Yeah. But but they had this idea. But we to have to back it up to Mass Mental, though. Because oh yeah, I, I do have the picture, which weirdly has John in it. So um, after he graduated, right, oh that was right. After Bill graduated, we did a couple of projects. Bill, did, Bill was living in the dorm with. Chris. Well, he was essentially living in my dorm room, <laughs> working at a tombstone, and working as a as a a, a word processor at a tombstone company because <laughs> he wanted to be with me. Um, and then we did we did two projects, right? We did that elementary school in Cambridge, Snow Queen. Remember? Mm -hmm. Where you were on the ladder? <laughs> Wait. Mass, mass no, mental. I, don't know. I mean, I actually don't know how these things started, but <laughs> somehow Bill somehow this idea of working with non-professional with interesting communities. Yeah, seated, was seated way back there. Be, well, and also, quite honestly, and this is for reals, and this is what like drove us to start Cornerstone because we'd had all this open access to the RT. So even if you weren't in a, in the play, you'd just open up the door and watch Joanne Acolytus do her thing. Like it was incredible. Yeah. It was like so unstructured and fantastic. But you know, we started sensing the classism, the how much the tickets cost, and. All of us are populists, 100% populists. We are anti-snobs, you know? Uh -huh. So it was like, is this stuff interesting well, to- you mentioned Brecht. I mean, like like that that you were even conscious of Brecht as a, I mean, you were going to Harvard. You were all obviously very smart people, but like- But, but, we, but we also were really, it's just in our core. I feel like all of us, like if, the, and it, I carry it with me into movies and television, like not into elitist, like not into it, like doesn't interest me, doesn't inspire me. And also as a human being, I don't like it. I don't like it. So somehow, anyway, all I know is feels like, do you want to do some Moliere with some um, mental, you know, people in a mental hospital? I was like, totally. I will totally do that with you. 
that is so wild. we were i don't know how that happened but we were doing some moliere and then people would be like off their meds on their med like we started this muscle of but we never and this is was always hard to describe when we were on the road with cornerstone and and still for a cornerstone artist it was never teaching it was never performing for like we just got off on no we we and that's so weird like where <laughs> that we can't remember where that impulse came from i think Did- it was that bill I don't know how he got the job to direct a play at the Mass Mental Health Center. And then I think he just asked a bunch of us, like, will you come and be in it? So that model of seating a more experienced person and a person that he, you know, that the bones of Cornerstone were kind of right there. there. But I, I agree. It was it was very egalitarian. Right. It wasn't like we like we, we never thought of ourselves as like the experts, like, cause we didn't study theater, right? We were just doing it cause we loved it. And I think that, that feeling or that what ethos, whatever, however you want to put it, like that totally informed what we were doing. Like we just were like, yeah, okay, we'll come do this play. And, and it, it and- was already happening, Chris. Like, so, so Bill, I don't even know if we've said his last name, Bill Rausch, but uh, he I- was, I don't know how he got hired to direct a play with resident. It was a residential mental health facility. And what I, what I mean is, was when you got to college, when you both came into undergrad, was everybody already talking about, Oh, Bill Roush is this wonderful director. You got to be, you know, okay. I think it had been also Harvard. What, because Peter Sellers, the opera director had just graduated or been around so there was a culture of like a director sort of, you know, making a splash. And Bill was definitely that guy when we got there. And I mean, I know for me, I, I, had, I had just played Romeo in a production at my all boys Catholic high school in Massachusetts and in a, in a very traditional Renaissance set, Romeo and Juliet. And the first show I did was playing was in playing Romeo's page in Bill's production of Romeo and Juliet, which start which was done in a vast empty space with all all just gray carpeting and no no scenery. And it opened with Laurie Anderson music and it could not have been more different and weirder than my theater experience up until that point. And it was also extraordinary. You know, it was brilliant. And so you you go through college. You you do this work together. You and you and Bill met. You fell in love. He stayed in. He stayed in Boston of, yeah. while you finished your uh, for for a year, and then he went down to D.C. Engraving tombstones. He was doing the word processing for <laughs> like yeah, what goes on a tombstone. I and mean, honestly, this... Allison at the time was a paralegal in New York. And if not for People Express Airline, you remember that airline where you could fly? $100. Oh, right. Those gigantic 747s that they were just- Yeah, if not for People Express, I don't think Cornerstone would exist because you could could just fly for 19 bucks from Boston to DC or New York to DC. Um, And they started figuring out what Cornerstone was and the- a lot of us in that first, like the, the founding members were part of the Cronauer group. 
So what is this Cronauer name in reference to? <laughs> it, it was a, because, like Amy said, because there was so much, there wasn't official theater. There were, you know, there was the Loeb Drama Center, which the students shared with the ART, but theater happened everywhere in dorms and, you know, dining halls. And Bill wanted to do this group where we all just worked together as an ensemble six nights a week. So he asked the head of the dorm where he lived, Adam's house, where Amy lived, if we could turn this basement storage room into a performance space and the guy. And just kind of have it. So we didn't have to rent it it or ask other people. It was just always there. We had to clean it out and we had to paint it all the walls black. And it sat like what? 30 people tops. It was tiny little space. And the head of the Adams house dorm was professor Cronauer who gave Bill like $500 to do this. So it was named, it is still to this day, a performance, an official performance space on campus, which is crazy. We were really bad mice along Uh, with, along with Peter Howard. Peter Howard. We could, and Chris would make me, me laugh so hard. And then Bill was like, you guys. <laughs> like, but it was really rude when I think about it now. So but it's like you and I were falling in love. Like there was just like. Totally. <laughs> totally. And out of that, like Peter Howard, who's an actor, Cornerstone, and Lynn Jeffries. David Rifle. David Rifle. He was David in the program. Oh, our composer, the composer on 12th Night. Yes. Yeah. He's a founding Cornerstone member and you know, brilliant, wrote all the music for our shows. And it was, and Ben Cobb, like it was crazy. You you come, Ben Cobb, that's that's Alison Carey's husband, who's also yeah. a, a theater, does everything in theater, right? Does everything. Creates, yeah, everything. Jack of all trades. You both came out of Harvard and then you, you started Cornerstone immediately with Bill? Yeah. We, it was interesting because, um, Robert Brustein, who was the artistic director of the ART and a professor and like had been really good to so many of us and giving us opportunities at the ART and just a like a really good guy. And he was starting the ART Institute the year Amy and I graduated and said to us, like, I'm, we're going to do a pilot program for a grad program. I want you all to be part of it. And it will be I didn't tuition know that. Free. Yeah. yeah. Was me, I invited? I could have gotten yes. a graduate degree. <laughs> it was you, me, Peter Howard, and Bill Rausch. And he, and we all, all said to him, no, no, thanks. We want to get in this van and drive to the middle of nowhere and do plays. And that's what there, we did. There's one other historic figure in the mix who I have to mention, um, James Bundy, right? Who's now the Dean yes. of the Yale School of Drama and, and artistic director of Yale Repertory Theater. He was part of your, your group as well, right? Getting in the, the van and- he wasn't, and- he wasn't the first year, but I think he came the second or third year because James was an actor and he was, he was acting at OSF. Oh, and right. then decided he wanted to transition into maybe administration and directing. And then he, he, I think he, the story is, I think he left his OSF contract early to come be man, managing director at Cornerstone. I see. So he came in a little bit later. A little bit later. So you all get into this van. Literally, you get into a van. Literally and- a van. You, yeah. you- a van which was purchased like 
two nights before we, we hit the road when Bill's father said to Bill and Allison Carey, how are you going to get people to Virginia where we started? And they were like, we hadn't really thought that far. <laughs> Literally, he co-signed this loan so that Cornerstone. Well, also, I think that we were going to have like used cars or old cars. And Bill Sr. was like, no, you're going to need a sturdy vehicle. <laughs> Something reliable. Yeah, exactly. So you're out there, you're driving cross country, you're doing plays for just all different types of people, right? With, I mean, not for, with, with. That's right. Yeah. Talk a little bit, Amy, please, about the the philosophy behind Cornerstone and the what what the mission of the company was. Well, it, it's funny. I don't know if I lifted this from somewhere, but I had to send somebody a, a, res, a current resume and it said something about Cornerstone and it's a company committed. Wait, you, you still have to send people resumes? <laughs> yeah, I do. Okay, listeners. I mean, it's we're, it's we're, because I'm a keynote speaker, but you know. Oh, oh that doesn't count. Sorry, sorry. Okay, um, I was going to tell our listeners, see, you know, you oh, never yes. really, really make it. You do, you do. <laughs> oh my Go God. Ahead. Should we tell, actually, I think we should tell Michael the cast is chocolate. The what? But, cast is Jacquinetta. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, now you have to. You started to. You can't, you can't un- unring a bell. Okay. So uh, back to this guy, John, who was my boyfriend for about five years. He's a wonderful guy. But he had a deep influence over me. Brilliant actor, kind of snobby, deeply. Infl- He's five years older than me. So I took a year off from college. I traveled the first part. The second half, I was in Cambridge, just like living with my boyfriend. And the ART was doing... Love's Labor's Lost? Is that what that part would have been? Love's Labor's Lost. And like yeah. Big River or something. So John and I decided to, you know, audition. I got cast in Love's Labor's Lost. And then, um, you know, and I'm basically, as you see, like, I like plays and plays are good. And, and John is like, this is bullshit. Like, that director's stupid. And we let's not do it. I was like, yeah. Let's not do it. <laughs> and so I got a job um, like in the deli at Bread and Circus, like slicing meats. And I'm like, yeah, I'm an honest actor. <laughs> <laughs> and so on my, but I still, I still was like, well, I, I could have done that part in a professional theater. So, so we were putting a resume together one day. And I wrote, <laughs> I wrote in parens, cast as Jacquinetta at the ART and Chris Moore's like, but you didn't do the part. I was like, but I was, the main thing was getting the role. He's like, no, you can't do that. No, you should put, there should be a special thing on our resumes where we say turned down. Yeah, thank you. The that we turned down. You know, out of principle, right? All right, back to Cornerstone. Um, So we produce site-specific community-based theater, um, original plays on the themes of social justice, right? So, so the idea is, so, so we're, when often, as you just made that little, um, little slip up word, we, people would think, oh, you're going to a place, you are the professional actors, you're performing for them. We would create um, pieces of theater with the people that work, that lived in the community. So that meant that we were living in places for three, up three to up to six months. 
uh, it, it got longer because we realized the longer that we were there, um, even we would, we stopped even choosing the plays until we got there. We'd have something in the back of our mind, but it's like, what is meaningful? What do the community members resonate with? What's going on in the community so that we can begin to build something, um, about them. And so, um, so yeah, we would live in these usually geographically remote places for usually three to three to five months. And how did, I mean, in, did you find places to live in them or did you live? So out of we the would van ask, or? it was a very organic process, uh, but we would ask for two things from the town. One is uh, everybody got their own bedroom. So early day, early on, we're like, we're not going to bunk up with family. That can be a great model, but we're going to, you know, everybody needs their own bedrooms. So, so housing and a space that could become a theater. Um, so that could be, uh, uh, in Mississippi, we used uh, an old movie theater that we let Lynn brilliantly and Ben created a theater space out of in, uh, on the Walker River Paiute Reservation. It was a welding shed that we could drive cars into. So it could be anything, but we, and, and usually in every town we went to, there was one person who really got it. And on the town council, on the arts council, there was somebody that took a chance on us crazy people. And Chris, you were an actor in all of these productions. Yes. Or in most of them. Where was the seed of directing planted for you? Was it doing these plays in these different environments? When did you know that you were going to start to bridge into directing? I, I don't think it came back then because, you know, it, it's we all <laughs> we pretty much only worked with Bill Rausch as a director for years. Right. I mean, you know, we had done some other stuff, but honestly, and I guess being, you know, partnered with him and then later married, I, I, I it honestly looked like a lot of work. Being a director. <laughs> he seemed and very I, stressed. <laughs> I had to be at every rehearsal. And <laughs> I just, I never, it never crossed my mind to do anything other than act. Until we got Cornerstone did that uh, traveling thing to mostly rural places for six years. And then we moved to L.A. and started right, doing work in L.A. Um, with and, and looking at ways to define community other than just geographically. Then the idea came like, oh, maybe I should direct. Why L.A.? Why did you choose L.A. as a place to settle or did that kind of happen by accident? No, it was a very intentional process when we were, we had done, we'd done like basically five years of this rural work, mostly rural work, and then did this Winter's Tale tour where we asked two or three people from each of those small towns to come together and create a new production of Winter's Tale. And we all rehearsed that in this town in Northwest Kansas called Norcater, where we had, it was, they had this old schoolhouse um, where we could live and work. And, um, and then we toured that Winter's Tale back to everybody's hometown and finished it up with performances in Boston, New York, and finally on the, the mall in front of the Capitol in DC. And it was a pretty, I mean, it was really, really hard, but it was a pretty remarkable experience because there were people from all over the country who didn't know each other and only knew us coming together to make this work of art. Um, so much trust. So know, much trust. And, 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 you know, we had 
kids as young as what, like 12, and then, you know, elders that were in their late 70s. And um, it was just this crazy traveling circus. There's a, there's a documentary, yeah, it's actually pretty but, great, called Cornerstone, that was, people had tried to make a doc, or wanted to make a documentary about our process. The documentary is 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 about the tour, which is like a little unlike what we actually have been doing for five years, but you get the flavor and you definitely yeah. get a sense of the people and how we interacted and 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 this is the production of the Winter's Tale that launched you as a gas pump, Amy Brown. Well, I like to think of it as Winter's Tale, aka the gas pump show. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I think of it. <laughs> so you got your start as a gas pump. I did. <laughs> and ended up now, okay, Amy, how did you go from such a sort of like um, purposeful theater life um, with this sort of focus on social justice into such a different world uh, as a television actor? Well, is, there's nothing accusatory in that question, by the way. It's like, <laughs> when no, did you I mean, sell I'll your be, soul? I'll be honest, I, I thought I, I'm all I ever wanted to do is like be a regional theater actress and I love doing plays. And and then I did have, I left Cornerstone briefly at one point and got into Juilliard. And I thought, well, that's, I'll go into, I'll get into Juilliard. And then when the time came to go to Juilliard, I didn't want to go because I loved Cornerstone. And so, and I never thought twice, I still don't think twice about it. The only time I thought about it was when I landed in New York and theater just didn't want me. They just wanted the Carnegie Mellon girls and the Yale girls. And I started booking commercial. I never thought about film or television. Um, I mean, I liked it as much as, but I wasn't a filmophile or, um, so I just started getting, getting work and, and still thought of camera work as sort of a poor substitute for theater. And it wasn't until really NYPD Blue, and then meeting my husband, who's a filmmaker, I met him on NYPD Blue, where I started to really honor it as a beautiful art form, separate, that, where you can do different stuff, you know? Right. Um, and I love going back and forth. I feel super lucky to go back and forth. But Have it's you... funny, I didn't, you know, partly because of all of the empowerment, we, you know, Cornerstone also, I feel like I we have to give a plug, Chris. I mean, it was, it was run by consensus decision-making. It was not even a, you know, majority rule. It was like 11 people. I used to say like, you couldn't take a shit without 11 people saying, okay. You know, I mean, it was <laughs> true. so deeply respectful and collaborative. And that is the world that I love. That's how I like to move. Um, so when I first started working in film and television and I was the girl, I would just get these jobs, which was appropriate. I was just starting out, but I would see a call sheet and it wounded me. Like it was all so hierarchical, right? It's like one, two, three, four, five on the call sheet, above the line, below the line. I was like, this is, feels like the army. This does not feel like everybody respects one another. I mean, I actually think some, I mean, now, listen, ADs have a hard job, but there was so much about it where I was like, I want to, I don't want to be the boss, but I want to create a culture. Um, I want to be part of what creates a culture. And so it wasn't too long before I created my own TV show only because I loved ensemble. I was like, I, I, and I, Tyne Daly comes from theater. Like, it's like, can we bring what we love about the theater stuff into this other art form? 
do you think you would have had that that sort of confidence? This is kind of a leading question, I guess. But did, did the the cornerstone experience and that sort of I, I imagine there must have been a great deal of empowerment in in that kind of consensus decision making and collaborative process. Do you feel like you would have had that same just I, I can do this, do it on my own sensibility had you not had that experience working I, in Cornerstone? I mean, I, I would put it a different way. I always say Bill raised me right, you know? I mean, we raised each other right. So mm-hmm. when I first created Judging Amy and we got this wonderful writer, Barbara Hall, who who cracked it open, and she had this really weird producer that she was partnered with, Joe, who... It was such a piece of work. And he was from a different generation. I mean, I would never have chosen to work with a man, but Barbara brought him along at that time. And I remember him and Brad directed the pilot. And it was obviously my story. It was about my mother, blah, blah, blah. And I remember sensing this weird thing from Joe early on. And I thought, oh, he thinks I'm a, a diva. Like he thinks I'm power hungry. And I turned to Joe. I was like, if nothing else, I'm a great collaborator. You don't know that about me but it's like my superpower. Like I know, even though I'm queen of this thing, it's like, I I know how to collaborate. I know how to, I, there's nothing in me that wants to be the boss with a capital B. Um, And I do think that that, I think that that's just the cornerstone. That's just how we were. I mean, we created that culture together and it's what we bring wherever we go. I think it is foundational, right? I mean, I think that those values that we, yeah, and we all sort of create, like, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just making this theater company up as we, the methodology, the mission, anything. We just sort of, it it, it came very organically. But the values of, you know, what what we value, what we bring to different projects, I think absolutely come stem from that time, you know, there was, I remember there, do you remember there was, we did this really long production of Pier Gint in Eastport, Maine, which is the easternmost city in the country. And there was this huge cast and Amy and I were, were Pierre and Solvay and, you know, it was this amazing experience. And there was this time where Bill was trying to, like, we were trying to figure out, I think it was like a transition or something. It was like the whole cast was there during tech and this little 10 year old boy sort of raised his hand and was like, I think what we should do is this blah, 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 blah. And, you know, he was 10. So he kind of went on and on and on. It was actually a pretty good idea. And there was, there was a woman in the cast who had done, done some professional theater in her past and she took Bill aside and she just read him the riot act about how dare you waste all of our time by that 10 year old boy doesn't know what he's talking about. And you just made us all sit there and listen to it. And Bill was basically, you know, said to her, you really are missing the entire point of this enterprise, which is that it doesn't matter whose idea, the best idea will win. And if that's going to come from a 10 year old boy who's never been in a play before, who cares? The best idea should be honored and listened to. And I do think that we, in our endeavors after Cornerstone, you know, I think in Amy's career and certainly, you know, in what I've tried to do, it's like that, that just, it's who we are and it will always be informed how we want to conduct ourselves and what kind of 
room we want to create or right set we want to create. It's just, it's part of who we are. When we did Romeo and Juliet, especially with a classic, right? A new play, you don't really have this problem, but it's like, mm -hmm. I have it in my mind a certain way. I saw this production that was amazing. This is falling short, but, but you know, it's like, this is the production of it we're doing right now. This is what the audience is going to see. So speaking of the production that we're doing right now. <laughs> Speaking of old plays. <laughs> Twelfth Night. Chris, you obviously have a long relationship with this play. Um, it, it's one of the most famous of Shakespeare's plays. Tell us about your directing history with this play. I know you did it at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, if, what, 2017? 2018? Uh, I think it was 16. Yeah. 16. Right. Um, was that your first time directing it? No, that was my second time directing it. Um, I had actually been in it. Um, I think the first, my first encounter with it was being in it, and I, in a production that was, not, like not mid nineties. I don't ninety four, maybe ninety five. Um, that Allison, it was a cornerstone. Cornerstone would occasionally do shows with just the ensemble of professional artists. And it was one of those, you know, like once a year or once every other year we do that. And um, Allison adapted Twelfth Night to be set on a military base in Southern California. And it was it was sort of right at the height of Don't Ask, Don't Tell with the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. So I played both twins. I played Viola and Sebastian and um, Ben Cobb was Mariah and Michelle Mays, who uh, was Sir Toby. And, you know, it was a pretty, it was, it was a, uh, a remarkable production. It was just one of those, you know, the car, the fates aligned and it was a great cast and a great script and Bill, it was really, really fun. Um, and then I next I did I played Malvolio in a production at OSF directed by Darko Trezhnak, um, with Miriam Lauba, one of our producers. As your producer on as, uh, twelve, yeah, yep. she was Olivia and I was Malvolio, and um, and then I directed it at Cal Shakes. Um, John Moscone asked me to come down and direct it. And then I did it, my final thing before the Play On podcast was uh, the OSF production. Very long history at various phases of your life. Meeting this yes. play at all of these phases, how, how, do you, how did your relationship with it change? In, in what ways at each of these junctures do you feel like it spoke to you? That's a really good question. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think the play is, I think why I think it's one of the most perfect plays ever written is because it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it deals, it traffics in and lives so profoundly in grief and uh, grieving and, and, what that process is and the necessity of saying yes to joy and yes to, to living amidst all this profound sadness, right? Because loss is everybody is everybody. It's universal, right? It's like, you hope that love is universal and mostly it is, but it's not actually, 
but grief, everybody is going to lose somebody that is in their life. And I think that Shakespeare, you know, there's so much conjecture about him as a human and as a father, as a husband. And, you know, I think he, what we know factually about him, he was dealing with tremendous loss and grief in his own life. And I just think the play is, it's one of the few perfect, uh, I think, perfect works of art that there is. It's just a glorious, uh, gloriously sad and funny and gorgeous play um, in its understanding of, of human beings and what they go through. So I've always loved, 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 loved the play, loved it. I could go, I could keep on directing it like every year. Um, it's just, and it's so, you know, I've done, each version that I've done has been so wildly different and yet they're all, you know, it seems to illuminate something new each time for me, every time I encounter it. Um, and you know, encountering it many years ago as an actor and where I was playing both, it was so much about the politics of gender and sexuality and like, and also, you know, I wasn't a parent then and I now, you know, directing it now as a parent of, you know, a grown a, a guy who just graduated from college and having lost both my parents. It's just, it's so different each time I encounter this piece. I want to ask Amy, what's your history with this play? Well, I, I first was a, a, an audience member of this amazing production where Chris was mind blowing. Sorry, the one that he directed or the one that, one he, that played, he was in. So that naval base one. Yeah. It was just an incredible, um, I mean, it's funny. It's like, that's in my mind. That's the way to do it. So now when two people who are not identical twins play, yeah, I mean, just that this he, is This is the one where he was Viola and Sebastian yes. all the way back. Okay, got yes. it. And then I stepped in as Malvolio in that. Oh. Malvolio was a female. So part of, yeah, part of the politics of that was... Did was you that, do that? You, you did, was that an LA for Ashby. I think yeah, so. Was, yeah. There was like a year or two and I don't know where Ashby was. And then, so I right, did right, it. Right, right, right. Um, and so, so with that, it was Malvolio as a female clearly expressing like, yay, this woman likes me. So that again, very, I feel like that's something where, I mean, not that we are post anything, but I think that that certainly wasn't the point of this script. It's like, we live in a world where there's same sex couples getting married and you know, it's, it's, it's not, that was a much is a different time. Um, yeah, but I, more to the point, I've never been directed by my friend Chris Moore before. No kidding. Never. So that was what that was. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so what was this like for you, Amy? What was it like for you, Amy Brennan? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. I mean, I, you know, because, because, Chris, I mean, there was a point in Cornerstone, as much as I loved, as we all loved working with community members, the very last year, I was like, I don't want to act with anybody but Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so we did a Three Sisters. I was Natasha. He was Andre. I was so, it's like, I just yeah, want to hang out. We with always friends. played opposite each other. And that production of Pierre Gint was, it was like four hours long, right? It was really long. And you know the the thing about Pierre Gint and Solvay 
is they meet as children and then they're apart the entire play. Of course. So it's like Peter Gint goes and has all these adventures and so he waits basically, right? And so I had this really like crazy journey over the course of four hours that was really like exhausting and great, but really tiring. And I knew at the very end of it, (laughs) I would get to be with my friend and like we would have this beautiful scene where we played really, really old people. Um, And it was like this unbelievable like prize at the end of this journey to get to act with Amy. So I think of him as an actor. So literally like they'd been at OSF. Well, the, it was really those, I've never, well, yes, I'm going to say this. I'd never really dug Tennessee Williams before I saw Chris Moore's productions. Like I, I, it always felt like a tone poem and it always felt it's like, yeah, I get it. I get it in big accents and like, and then I think it was your cat that I was like, oh, this guy's a serious director. Cat on, cat on a hot tin roof. Yeah. So, so, yeah, then I was like, okay, my friend, my friend is mad skills in this area. So you, you were at this point, you're, you're a very famous television actor, right? You're, you're working on a series, but you would go up, I assume, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know, but I assume you went up and saw Bill and, and Chris at, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Yeah. And, and so, you got to know I, there. There are a lot of actors in this cast that performed in at at Oregon Shakespeare Festival and also at Cornerstone, I think. Right. Um, so you knew a lot of the people that you ended up performing with in this production. You knew I their did. work. I knew their work exactly. I mean, I knew Dan Parker also. Yeah, we'd go up usually twice. Our kids are really close. We loved. I mean, it's heaven, right? It's like you go and you go on the Rogue River and then you, I mean, it's, I drop my kids off at Bill and Chris's house. And so we and, were there a lot. Right, and you're in Charlotte, Amy's daughter, Charlotte, is a huge, huge theater buff and just loves, loves, loves to see plays. Yeah. So that was a very, that was an important annual pilgrimage. Yeah. Um, so we saw, we saw, we tried to see everything. Yeah. yeah. Bodie, Bodie and Zave were just kind of, fuck around <laughs> exactly <laughs> um oh no and when when they first went up to osf um it was really hard to lose them from la and i it, it's like my um it you know i don't know what the metaphor is but it's like my people were starting this it's new like thing so i would say to my husband i was like let's move to ashland let's move to ashland and he would very kindly say like, I don't know what I would do up there, but I can tell how much you like it. You know? So I felt like, and I went through the whole journey and now they're not there. So I don't have to be panged anymore, but. But you were, yes. so when they, when, when Bill and Chris left for Ashland, you were already on a series. Were you on, was it Judging Amy that was happening at that point? No, I mean. It was post Judging Amy, right? Um, yeah. yeah. When, when did Judging Amy finish? Uh, 2005, right before Zave and Bodie were born. And then, um, was I on private practice? I might've been on private practice. So in other words, your, your television career, did you ever, I mean, obviously you said that you talked to your husband about living in Ashland. Did you ever think of like 
wanting to go to OSF and do a season? I did. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, and if it had been sort of the normal, like three to four month thing, I would have done it in a second. It was, my kids were in school. It was hard to figure it all out. Um, but yeah, and I, I mean, I'm built for it. I would have just laughed with Dan Parker and probably drank too much, which is really my favorite thing to do. <laughs> um, yeah, and I do, I mean, I do, I've been pretty good about doing a piece of theater every every two years. Well, there was a while that I didn't, but then in the last bunch, yeah, it's like every year or two, uh, either I'm in something or I write something. So I don't, um, I, I've, it's been really important to me. Are you uncomfortable with being known as a television actor when you have had this incredible kind of foundation as a theater artist? No, because I feel like, um, I mean, a lot of people know me from Heat, you know? I mean, I feel like I've been lucky to like, oh, you do a movie and then you do, I mean, I, I feel like I've, um, if I, I think if I'd only been in one, um, you know, one thing, like you, Perry Mason or something or, you know, but I've never felt, and it's, and it's also really interesting that the different things I've done, and this is somewhat conscious and somewhat not, cause you never know what's going to hit, um, is entirely diff different demographic. So I have these 13 year old girls coming up cause they love Shonda Rhimes and private right. practice now plays and that things don't die. Well, for, judging Amy actually for a, a terrible deal way back when doesn't get, you know, and then I have um, young men that come up and have this look in their eyes. And I literally will say, do you need to talk about the leftovers? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I need to talk about it. It's like, got it. You know, so I have like. <laughs> That's right. So you've done you've done film, television, theater. You've yeah. It so all. it's like so the theater people are going to know that I do that right. sometimes. But I don't. Um, you know, my. I think for anybody, right? If you've only done theater, it's like, I want them to know I can do TV or if you do TV, I want them to know I can do theater. You know, I, I've never felt that I've been um, locked in. Um, you know, I mean, I have to audition and prove myself. It's like if I, um, I did this Craig Lucas play years ago that did not go well. <laughs> <laughs> Not because of Greg, but the play didn't really work. At Lincoln Center, Joe Mantello directed it. Viola was actually in it. This is years ago. And I had to audition for it out here in LA. Um, and I got it. And I remember going like, ah, oh, that means a lot, you know? Right. So you kind of make sure that you can still go where you want to go. And is theater calling to you now? Is it something you want to go back into doing? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, and some of it is where I'm at in my life. Some of it is post pandemic. I'm just a little not that interested in screen stuff. You know, like Saturday night, I said to my husband, like, I gotta, I gotta consume some art. You know, it was that moment, like, I wish I was in New York. And he's like, you wanna see a movie? I was like, nope, I wanna be with live people. So we found some jazz and I was super happy. It's like, I need to feel the live vibrational thing. And then also with my own work, and Chris has seen some of it, I like, I mean, because I'm, I'm lucky and I get to work in these different art forms. I like to see what they can do, right? So it's like a multi-episode TV show can do a certain thing. A two-hour thing can do a thing. What I like to do in my, I don't know how you describe, you can describe my work to him, but I like to, I pull in dance and I pull in sort of, I like to, there's stuff in my mind that I still, I still, I mean, I hopefully I always feel this way. There's stuff that I'm conceiving of that I haven't done yet. And right. usually I never fantasize about making a movie. I'll put it that way. Huh. I never go like, ah, I want to direct a movie. Like it never, 
the thing and the thing that I love about the the theater and and they are theater pieces that Amy creates, right? They come like they just her brain is a very very fertile place, and like these ideas come, and yeah, they they don't they don't in the best way respect genre boundaries at all, right? There's dance. There's like, it's spoken word, but it's also, there's scenes that are like, you know, like well-constructed scenes from a play. Um, and are these pieces that, that Amy, that you perform, are they like solo pieces? Yeah, they're not, they're never really solo. I mean, people say it's a one, one but it's, I, so Sabrina Peck, who's also a cornerstoner, who I think directed or choreographed Medea MMC at OSF, is that right? Yes. She's my longtime collaborator. She's a choreographer, but also a director and also a great friend and dramaturg. So I'll just sort of vomit stuff at her and then we'll sort of shape it. But there's almost all partly because she's a brilliant choreographer and partly because we like to amp. Okay, so here's to answer your question. I'm not that interested in realism on stage because like we get that with cameras. So it's like just to explode something wide open and abstract it. So usually there'll be like three or four people on stage with me and we do different things. One, one, um, yeah, one was about a, an illness that I had and sort of what went down in the hospital that was called mouth wide open. And then my more recent one is my daughter has special needs. So it's really the journey of being her ally and just sort of um, the neurodiversity world. And that's that we had a beautiful production set up at South Coast Rep. And then there was this pesky pandemic, uh, but we had yeah. like a designer and it, oh, it's like, and then now, you know, it's interesting with that one. Now I feel like not the moment has passed, but the moment might have passed actually, because I feel like the, the, the story of the mom of a neurodiverse, I feel like now the neurodiverse artists are doing their thing and Charlie, it's, it's, I may or may not get back to that one, but yeah, these things sort of, you're they always, often start out a spoken word piece and then we just sort of blow it open with some dynamite. So you're just always kind of going as an artist. You're, you're, you're kind of keeping a, a an artistic journal in a way. I am. I am. Well, I don't, I don't, I, it's funny. I, I have actually re-fallen in love with acting. Some of that is some recent experiences. Some of that is hanging out with Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow. Uh Um, Just, you know, I think you go through different phases. It's like, well, I really want to produce and acting sort of over here. And then it's like acting. Wow. (laughs) So I always, but that is, um, you know, inhabiting something that comes to you. Um, and, but then, but then there's the authorial piece of me that wants to say what I want to say, you know? So I love how they work together. Chris, do you feel like you're being called back in that way on stage? Oh God, I don't know. I hope so. I hope somebody will hire me as an actor (laughs) at some point, but I, I, I also wanted to say that like, you know, a huge part of Amy Brenneman for me, you know, my respect and admiration and love for her as an artist is boundless. And equal to that is my respect and admiration and love for her as an activist. And I think that that is a, like, they're, they're so connected, but you know, you asked her about like the, you know, being a, being known mostly as a film and TV actor and like, how does that affect, uh, 
I don't know of anybody, certainly in my life, who has used that platform that Amy has Mm -hmm. to actually make the world a better place. And that is part and parcel of who she is, as much as she is this incredible open heart as an artist, she uses that, you know, her platform to just fight for the good fight out there, you know, in, a, in, in our crazy messed up world right now. And I'm so grateful to her for that. Always. Right I want to I want to talk about that, um, but be, be before I do that, I feel like we need to do our dil- do uh, our due diligence here I, and and talk about the podcast. Um, yes, Chris, we just talked about all the the experiences you had directing and acting and encountering this play. What was the experience like doing a podcast? Was it anticlimactic? Was it not as fulfilling, or was it illuminating in ways you didn't expect? You know, I think that mostly the illuminating in ways I didn't expect, you know, I, 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 during the pandemic, I'd done some zoom stuff as an actor, but I hadn't directed anything, you know, it, it definitely made me want to be in the physical space with these actors in a room, but, you know, it's like, I I don't know. I've all, the thing that makes me, I think why I wanted to start directing in the first place is I just love actors. I've always just fucking loved actors. I love being on stage with, I love being an actor and acting with actors and like being in a space, a room, whether it's virtual or not with people that I just love and admire and, you know, getting to work on a great piece of, writing is 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 just a bonus because I just I love I mean come on it was like that that we just laughed our butts off every single day with that group of you know I said to everybody at the beginning and I truly feel like it was like a clown car pulling up right and like all these it's like oh my god there's Amy and there's Dan and then there's Jordan oh my god it's Davey Kelly like all these actors I just adore you know and as a director so often you just, it's like you're having a private production happening right in front of you every single day, you know, watching brilliant actors play. It's just, it's like crazy that somebody actually pays you to do it. It's (laughs) such a pleasure. How about you, Amy? What was it like for you doing a podcast? You've done all these different types of things, film, television, theater, is this the first podcast you've done in like a, as a fictional podcast, a scripted piece of scripted fiction, a series? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I did a bunch of, not, not recently, but I don't know if they're still doing them, but LA, LA Theater Works yes. um, would do these radio, which was slightly different because you'd do the whole thing in front of an audience. It was, it was uh, built for the radio. So you did have, um, you were aware of that, but, but you, but I, but this, this was cool. Cause there wasn't an audience and you could go back and pick up things. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I was of, I mean, I enjoyed it hundred percent and wished we could have done it because it's like, who doesn't want to do that play with these people, with this director. Um, I felt like it was a little, when we went to record it, and I don't, this is going to sound negative and I don't mean it negative. You couldn't be terribly subtle. Mm. 
So mm-hmm. there, to the clarity of the story, um, but I really liked that actually, because I think sometimes, um, not just with Shakespeare, but it's like the, the modern psychology piece and the Shakespeare piece sometimes are at war and sometimes it's like a song, right? You just do it and I'm feel sad here and then I'm annoyed there. And, and obviously if it was on stage, you could tell more stories in 3D. But I, I liked that though. I liked, I liked having, cause then it was, it really felt like, oh, I'm in service of the play, you know? And it wasn't like, I don't like the way I did that. Or my, my Olivia, it's like, no, I am. Does this make any sense? Totally. Yeah, yeah. The, the clarity of the storytelling. There's a way that it kind of gets like burnished down to essentials in yes. a great way, right? Like stuff, it, it, like, you know, I, as Michael, you you said at the very beginning to me, like, you know, silence on the radio or silence, you have to really, really earn it and be really specific about what that moment is. Whereas if you're watching live actors, you fill that, you can fill that silence, right? But your ears need, you, you got you to boil it down to more essentials, I think. Yeah, that, that the mind moves faster when you're just listening, then yes. it seems to when you're, I guess it makes sense because when you're in a physical space, it's three-dimensional and all, and all your senses are at play. Uh, Amy, we did touch about, uh, we touched on your activism and it's such a, it's a huge subject, right? There's a, there's all this debate. I've run into many actors who say, I don't want to be too political because I don't, I don't want it to hurt my career, right? You clearly are not worried about that. What are the places that you operate as an activist and and how can our listeners become a part of it with you? Um, well, well, in the reproductive rights and reproductive justice space, that's sort of where I've spent a lot of my time for a long time and and um, with this this scary stuff going down, which we knew, I, I worked for the center with the Center for Reproductive Rights, and so we we sort of knew that this was the direction that the Supreme Court would go in. Um, I I I'm still flabbergasted by the violent language of these state laws that are being proposed. It, that stuff that has never been out in the open. Now, obviously, like anything in a supremacist system, gender, race, whatever, things are coming to light that have been there for a long time. But the the bounty hunting piece, the like, the, it's just so shocking and so violent, um, but so clarifying too. And and I think that the this bounty. Summer, so you're referring to the Texas law? Yeah, in Oklahoma, you, I think they like it too. So so it's like right. a young. It doesn't even make any sense. It's like before a woman knows she's pregnant. I mean, I, I don't know. It'll listen, we're in an election year. So I want to think some of this is just so people that are, that get upset by that pro and con will give money, but some of it doesn't even make sense. For instance, the whole personhood thing of a fetus, that means that that fetus has constitutional rights. That means that let's say a, a gal from who's not an American citizen conceives that baby she cannot be deported. I mean, there's some very, I come from lawyers. So I'm like, hold up, you know, that, that fetus gets child support, that fetus gets constitutional rights. 
it's it's so unwieldy and so in a way that what what you know i have to keep I, a friend of mine runs the planned parenthood for out here in california for the san fernando or San Gabriel Valley. She used to be at my church, All Saints Pasadena. Go, um, in our, he, she was our peace and justice. Juliana Serrano, do you know her, Chris? Pete knows okay. her. Okay, she worked. They worked together on. Um, anyway, I called up. Anne Lamott has this great, <laughs> very famous thing she said, which is, "My mind is a bad neighborhood. It's best that I don't go in there alone." And that's kind of where I've been a lot. I was so pleased to have this podcast because I just would, you know. So I called up Juliana and I said, "What, what?" what can I do today? And she said, you know, just go to a, um, go to a Planned Parenthood and bring them donuts and just say, I love you. And that, you know, so, so in the middle of all this are obviously people that need care and, um, and the, and the caregivers that are trying to do their jobs. Um, I think, I think the thing about, you know, I was part of the amicus brief in 2016. I hadn't, I terminated two pregnancies, one very much wanted with my husband and one when I was 21, which I was like, yippee skippy. I mean, I was like, thank you, Jesus. Like I can go to, on Cornerstone. Like I would have been, I would have had a baby. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I was part of in 2016, an amicus brief that said, you know, most women, 97% of women do not regret the abortions they had. They may feel sad about them. They may have different feelings. Um, regret is not one of them. So um, it began, it didn't begin, but it's sort of, we're seeing a lot more of that now with Congresswomen, all sorts of women just saying like, yeah, I, one in three, this, I had it, I had one. Um, and I think, I think that, and then there was this big um, article in the New York Times and there was my big mug, you know, and it's like people talking about their abortions. And that was, and that was getting Twitter hate. That was getting some pretty violent stuff online that I hadn't experienced before. Um, and it was scary and weird, but honestly, um, it's okay. It, it's, it, 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 it also as an actor that, that people pleasing, everybody has to like me. Like it's been very freeing to realize there's a whole population that will always hate me and that's okay. That's okay. Um, because one in three of those women also will need abortion care and I will be there for them. <laughs> Takes, so uh, it's been, so I feel like my own self has gotten um, uh, more and more involved. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it's because you know I've always, I've always my career is established. I've been married forever. I'm a mom. Like it's um, it's okay. It's also what what. I mean, it's funny, I don't want to make all my art about stuff, but it is where um, where I feel compelled to write is usually because some sort of house is on fire, either mm -hmm. within myself or within the world. So you're the, the driving force behind what you do really is the, the just having this need to express what is raging inside and, and when it comes to any kind of a a cause or just a... Yeah. I mean, definitely I process myself through writing. I mean, even journaling. I mean, I'm just a big writer that way. And then sometimes it becomes for public consumption and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, I very rarely, if ever, it's like, I have an idea for a movie and these two people are in a store. Like, I just don't think that way. <laughs> Although I will develop, as you know, I have successfully developed TV shows. But my thing is, I'll sense characters a situation that is really i mean it's what i did with judging amy it's like oh this this is rich these people could talk this way and then my husband who is actually a screenwriter was like that's cool like 
what happens? <laughs> I'm like, what? He's like, well, what do they do? What? You know, I'm like, ah. <laughs> right. You got to come up with the, uh, the beginning. The, you you I, got the beginning. You need the middle and the I'm end. I'm the worst plot. <laughs> like, well, I, I know how they feel about it and what they might say about it. But <laughs> Chris, what, what do you think you'll be getting into next? Do you, do you have a project lined up? Are you just focusing on, on family right now? What, what's driving you? Yeah, you know, honestly, I, uh, we moved to New York uh, three, almost three years ago now, right when our daughter was starting high school. And so I promised her that I wasn't going to take work that would take me out of town because I would sort of help her adjust to life in New York. And what I thought would be like a year or year and a half hiatus has turned into a, a much longer sabbatical. So I don't know, you know, I'm, she's still got one more year of high school and I'm focused on that. And, you know, if things come my way, I'll be grateful and, and uh, you know, see what happens. And then, and then I look forward to returning to the stage and playing the old guy. <laughs> right. The, the old, the old neighbor. I, I think you're going to be the old guy who looks 20 years younger. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love you for liars, Blanche Dubois would say. Well, it's been a real honor and a privilege to have both of you in the same virtual room at the same virtual time. Your work together on this was infectiously delightful. We, all of us who got to experience it, were just elevated by it. And you're right, Chris, that just coming in and laughing every day was really the best, the best experience and the best tonic uh, in, a, in a really fraught time. Uh, Amy Brenneman, Christopher Liam Moore, thank you so much for being a part of the Play On podcast. 12th night series and for being a part of the bonus content series that accompanies it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. A great interview. You've been listening to the Play On Podcast bonus content series. You can learn more about the Play On Podcasts at Next Chapter Podcast website, ncpodcasts.com. That's N as in next, C as in chapter, podcasts with an S at the end. Dot com, where you can find other Play On podcast series and interviews, along with talk podcasts like The 500, The 10, The Tough Juice podcast with Karan Butler, and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcasts, and my producer, Peter Musto. Our audio engineer is Adam Bernard, and our editor and sound designer is Justin Cortez. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcast for updates on all the latest content. And don't forget to rate and review our shows. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcasts. A note for all you writers out there, whether you're working on your own play, drafting a novel or memoir, or pitching nonfiction projects, the hashtag AmWritingPodcast will help you take your writing career where you want to go. 
Hosts KJ Della Antonia, Jessica Leahy, and Serena Bowen have written everything from New York Times best-selling fiction and nonfiction to indie darling romance to articles published in periodicals like The Atlantic and The New Yorker. And in every episode, they offer relentlessly helpful, immediately actionable advice on how to get your butt into your chair and get your work done. Subscribe to the hashtag AmWritingPodcast on your pod player of choice. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Next Chapter Podcasts.